Okay. Um, well, today we're going to finish our, well, our, do our, our, our almost last uh, talk on the book of Ruth as we talk about, oh, do I need a, Malcolm, did I need a little thing or not? Because this, this thing does it. Okay, great. Today we'll do the penultimate talk on the book of Ruth. Uh, so we look at the last chapter, Ruth chapter 4. Excellent. Uh, and so beginning in chapter 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer had he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witness. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who, built, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Throughout the offspring, uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who has this day not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Once long ago in the heart of India, among the many smaller nations that covered the subcontinent, there was a Mughal king who deeply loved his wife. When, after years together, she passed away, he created a colossal monument to her. The entire giant domed monument is a mausoleum perfectly 
symmetrically arranged around the tomb of his wife. Today, if you go and visit the Taj Mahal, you will find that the only off-center part of the monument is the king's tomb, which the king's son placed next to the king, next to the tomb of the king's beloved wife. Today's story is a different kind of testament to love, but it is no less compelling. We've been reading through the book of Ruth, and today we come to the culmination of this love story. I find it interesting that the book of Ruth was, at an earlier point, appended to the end of the book of Judges. The book of Judges describes a series of Israelite leaders who worked to free Israel from under the thumb of foreign nations that were oppressing them. Some of the stories are pretty gruesome. And nearly all of them involve hard-fought battles against the surrounding nations. And the book finishes with a simple love story about an unimportant young foreign woman who finds help and then love in the arms of a kindly Israelite man. The Old Testament scribes had a real knack for how to tell a story. We can summarize the story by looking at the different ways that people display love and the obstacles that they overcome. It has all the makings of a, Hollywood, uh, of a Hollywood love story. I could see Tom Hanks as Boaz, the male lead, and Meg Ryan as Ruth. It would totally have worked if they'd done it back in the day when they were doing all those rom-coms together. I mean, obviously, you'd need to tweak the basic storyline element at a few points. But beyond that, it could have worked. But the story starts off on a sad note. In chapter 1, we learn that Naomi and her husband left the city of Bethlehem because of a famine. They leave with their two boys and go to, the for- to a foreign country, Moab, where their boys get married to some young women from the area. But then, a famine visits Moab, and at the end of a decade in Moab, Naomi's husband and both of her sons have died, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law without any form of support. Obviously, the world is different now. In our industrialized society, women are able to sustain themselves just fine, thanks. Women don't rely on men for their support in the same way that, as they once did, as this book by Miss Baker makes clear. <laughs> but things were different back then. So I've made a few alterations to the book to reflect the reality of, <laughs> to reflect the reality of how things were in the ancient world. These women were without support. They were destitute. About this point, they hear that the Lord has provided food in Israel. The three women begin the journey to Bethlehem, but after a short distance, Naomi sends her daughters-in-law back to the protection of their own parents, where at least they'll be provided for. She asks for God's chesed, his loving kindness, to be on them. But only one of the women actually goes back home. The other, Ruth, does something irrational, something against her own best interest. Ruth is intensely devoted to Naomi and vows that she will follow her back to the land of Judah with the words, Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth commits herself to show Naomi the very same kindness and devotion that Naomi has just asked God to show Ruth. They arrive in Bethlehem just as the harvest is starting. At this point, Naomi is a broken woman. When they arrive, some people recognize her from a decade ago and say, Isn't this Naomi? Naomi, 
whose name means pleasantness or sweetness, says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. She is bitter about her life, and I think she is, I think there's a hint that she is bitter towards God as well. It is almost as though she is saying, he is almighty. If you want to explain my misfortune, well, the buck stops with him. At the time, Israel was made up of 12 different tribes, and your clan had your back. One scholar pointed out that the word translated family really means something like a protective association of extended families. If you were murdered, it was the responsibility of your kinsmen, your relatives, to kill the guy who killed you. If your husband died, it was the responsibility of your kinsmen to look after you. At the time, they had what is called Leverite marriages, where the dead man's brother was required to marry his widow and produce offspring on behalf of his brother. Oh, boy. We think our families can be overly involved in our marriages now. (laughs) Can you imagine what the family discussions were like back then? I could imagine a guy giving his brother a stern talk about who he's dating. Bro, I'm telling you, don't marry her, because if anything happens to you, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. (laughs) Anyway... Anyway, Leverite marriages had an important role at the time. This custom kept women out of poverty, and above all, it provided a way to carry on the family name of the deceased man. But Naomi was too old at this point for any talk of getting married and having kids. And as for Ruth, she was a tricky case. She was from Moab, a nation that was actually an enemy of Israel. She was an outsider. It's not obvious that the Israelites would have felt like she had, like she really counted as a relative who was entitled to their kinship protection. So they arrive in town, as we said, at the start of the barley harvest. They were hoping to glean some leftovers from the fields. The Old Testament law forbade farmers from harvesting all of their crops so that some would be left for poor people. So Ruth goes out to harvest. Now, obviously, there would have been quite a few fields in which she could have harvested. After her first day out in the fields, she comes back with an enormous haul of grain. Naomi realizes that, quite by chance, Ruth has traipsed onto the field of one of her own relatives, a guy named Boaz. At last, the penny drops for Naomi. Maybe Ruth's lucky coincidence of ending up on this field, and maybe this man's incredible generosity, are clues that God is up to something. Maybe she's not as abandoned as she thought. In the morning, her life was bitter. But by evening, she starts to hope, all at once, for the first time in a long time. It was so out of the blue, so not what Naomi was expecting. Like Cinderella discovering she had a fairy godmother. The Lord bless him, she says. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And there it is again. The word translated kindness is the word chesed. Boaz has shown unexpected, extravagant kindness to Ruth, who doesn't have any strong claim to it. A couple of months go by. The barley is harvested, and then the wheat is harvested. Naomi recognizes that it's time for Ruth to act. She tells Ruth to get out of her widow's clothes and get herself dolled up in a nice dress and some nice perfume. She tells Ruth to sneak out to Boaz on the threshing floor. She tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet. So the cool night air will guarantee that he wakes up. And then the plan sort of stops. Just put the ball in his court and see what happens. So we're left to wonder, what's going to happen now? 
What's he gonna do? But as he pointed out, but as he also pointed out, Ruth, uh, sorry, as Malcolm diligently pointed out, there's a lot of potential innuendo going on in Naomi's plan. But as he also pointed out, Ruth changes the plan (laughs) at a certain point. Once Boaz is startled awake, Ruth doesn't passively sit by and wait to see what will happen. She takes matters into her own hands. She pops the question. She does it by telling him that he is her kinsman redeemer. Of course, Boaz is not exactly related to Ruth. She's from Moab, as the text keeps telling us. He's related to Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Ruth and Naomi were related by marriage, but that marriage ended when Ruth's husband died. Boaz cottons on to what's going on. He actually does pretty well for a guy who's just been startled awake in the middle of the night on a threshing floor by a woman who's just proposed to him. <laughs> he, recognizes that, he recognizes that even though Ruth could have gone for younger men, she is still showing devotion to her mother-in-law. He realizes that she realizes that if she marries him, Naomi will be provided for. And he's blindsided by the devotion that Ruth has to her deceased husband's mother. He says to her, I will do for you all that you ask. Well, that's an ironic twist. Naomi's plan ended with her, uh, ended with Ruth following along with whatever Boaz said. What actually happened was that he followed along with whatever he with whatever she said. It's like they were already married or something. <laughs> he also mentioned. Can you tell I'm true that last time? I did? <laughs> Not impressed. <laughs> he, also, he also mentions that everyone knows of her noble character. It's like the narrator intended that little bit to let you know, look, I know, yeah, Naomi's plan sounded a little bit sus, but you need to know that everything was on the up and up. These were people of noble character. Take, a look at, take another look at what Boaz says to Ruth. You have, shown kindness. you have shown more kindness now than before. At first, Boaz was impressed by the loyalty Ruth showed Naomi by staying with her, even if it meant leaving her home and her country and her blood relatives and becoming a refugee. Now he sees that she is seeking a redeemer to provide for her, uh, to provide an heir for Naomi. And when he describes her kindness, there's that word, again, hesed, which describes a kind of over-the-top generosity, love, and loyalty. And, of course, this loyalty to someone weaker than himself makes him, uh, weaker than herself makes him appreciate her all the more. I remember being in my 20s, hearing a young woman tell, tell me about being in line at a fast food restaurant behind someone with special needs. She told me how she felt empathy for him and prayed that he would have friends and a pleasant life. That compassion she had for others is one of the reasons I asked her to marry me. When we see someone with selfless love, we're naturally drawn to them. So here's a quick recap. In in chapter 1, Ruth shows chesed to Naomi. In chapter 2, Boaz shows chesed to Ruth and Naomi by providing excessively for their needs. In chapter 3, Ruth shows even greater devotion to Naomi by pursuing Boaz in marriage, who she knows will provide for them both. And now comes chapter 4. No mention of chesed here. 
Instead, we get a picture of why Naomi was so hopeless at the start of the book. We get a picture of the life she was anticipating, a life without Hesed. In this Cinderella story, there's no wicked stepmother to deal with, but there is a fairly apathetic, self-interested, closer relation of Naomi's. Back on the threshing floor, Ruth proposes, after Ruth proposes, Boaz explains that there is another, closer kinsman redeemer who is first in line to decide whether to redeem or not. So Boaz approaches the guy about making a decision. After this other man, at first, this other man is willing to redeem a field of Naomi's, but then Boaz hits him with the terms and conditions. The field also comes with a wife, and your children will be legally considered the offspring of her deceased husband to continue the family line. The unnamed man then balks and says, Wait, I gotta look after my own kids. I can't go splitting up their inheritance and giving it to some other guy's family. Why don't you take the field along with the terms and conditions, Boaz? You're next in line after me. You can see why Naomi assumed the worst at the start of the story. If all her relatives were like this guy, she'd be up the creek without a paddle. But Boaz is cut from a different bolt of cloth. He says, look, I don't make the laws, but I do marry my deceased relatives' widows when the time comes for it. Know what I'm saying? I'm not afraid to step up. The irony is that the nameless guy is the one who's obsessed with keeping his family's lands together so that he can pass on more to his kids and make a great name for his family. Today, no one even knows who he is. His name is never mentioned in the story. And yet, this guy acts like he's angling to establish some great dynasty. Ruth and Boaz, on the other hand, took a different path. They show faithfulness and kindness to the point of making serious, life-altering sacrifices. In other words, they show hesed. And yet... They are the ones who are remembered. They are the ones who found a dynasty. As we find out at the end, they are the ones who become the grandparents of King David. This word hesed is one of the most important and difficult to define words in the Bible. It's so tricky to define that translators will often use two words, like faithful love, or hyphenated words like loving kindness, to translate it. At the end of the book of Exodus, Moses asks God to reveal himself to him. God reveals as much of himself as Moses can comprehend. We only have time to read a portion of the passage from Exodus 34, but this is one of the high points of the Old Testament. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and filled with, and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Notice that when God describes himself, he uses the word hesed twice. There's a lot to say about this word. I looked it up in a theological dictionary, and the entry was 17 pages long. So I'll have to just hit on some of the main points. The word hesed is used almost 250 times in the Old Testament. Its origins don't come from any other language, just Hebrew. This means, of course, that none of the other nations thought of their gods with this type of loving covenant faithfulness because they didn't even have a word for it. Psalm 136 talks about God creating the world and then leading Israel across the Red Sea. And it finishes every sentence with the phrase, Your chesed, your loving kindness, endures forever. In Psalm 144, the psalmist actually uses the word chesed like it is a name for God. He is my faithful love. 
He's using it like we would say, my Lord or my God, my faithful love. This is a special attribute that belongs to God. Loving kindness describes what the heart of God is like. We can, but we can share in a kind of dim echo of this special characteristic of God. We can show chesed too. Consider this quote from the Emperor Julian, who regretted the growth of Christianity because people were deserving the old Roman gods. He said, atheism, that was his term for Christianity because there were no visible idols in this religion, has been, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through the care for and burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar, beggar, and that the godless Galileans, this was another term for Christians because Jesus was from Galilee, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the, look in vain, those who belong to us is by the way pagans, uh, look in vain for help that we should render them. So, the Emperor Julian complained that Christians showed love to strangers, and that is why their numbers grew so quickly. It sounds like the early church really did have a heart that was modeled after the love of God. As I kept researching, I came across a recent book about the meaning of the word chesed. The book, uh, starts, the book starts by listing the many words that would have, that, sorry, the many words that have been used in various attempts to translate chesed into English. At one point, the author acknowledges that a person could spend his life attempting to plumb the depths of all that this word means, but he does offer a shorter working definition. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything, that is chesed. In 1996, there was a rally of members of the KKK in Massachusetts, of all places. About 15 Klansmen showed up, and there was a counter-demonstration that numbered in the hundreds. One of the Klansmen somehow got disoriented or decided he wanted a confrontation and ended up among the counter-protesters. His SS tattoos and white power t-shirts gave away which side he was on. He tried, too late, to run away and was quickly surrounded and thrown to the ground by counter-protesters who began kicking and beating him. It seemed like his fate was to die at the hands of people who hated the hate that he embodied. At that point, Keisha Thomas, an 18-year-old black woman, leapt from the crowd and shielded him with her own body. She was saying with her actions, If you want to beat him, you have to go through me first. If you want a short definition of chesed, that image is a pretty good starting point. When I read about this, it struck me that it was such a Christ-like thing to do. So I wasn't surprised when I read that she was motivated by her faith, along with her own difficult personal experiences. Her actions were beautiful precisely because they were not totally unique to her. They were beautiful because they offer a kind of reflection of what the heart of God is like. She did what she did, what she did sounds a lot like Paul's advice to the Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value, your, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Doesn't that sound a lot like Ruth and Boaz, or like the early Christians, or again like this young woman leaping to save a, save a man who hated her? 
Let's see. Who else does that sound like? I'll let Paul finish this thought. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Ultimately, if you want to understand Hesed, look to Christ. Christ is Hesed. Christ is God's own faithful loving kindness in human form. If you want to understand God's love, a love that motivates enormous self-sacrifice, look to Christ. And as you look to Christ in faith, you should know that God's work is still ongoing. God is building a monument to celebrate his own love story and is much more spectacular than any mausoleum, even the Taj Mahal. The Apostle Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Ruth and Boaz give us a hint of God's love story. Many generations later, one of their descendants, Jesus, shows us the fullness of God's love. And still today, the story continues. The monument to God's love is no sterile tomb. It is His living church, comprised of people with hearts transformed by the faithful love of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your mighty and wondrous love that you include ordinary, unimportant people in your story, like Ruth, like ourselves. Thank you for your great goodness, Lord. We pray for the strength and the wisdom and, above all, the Christ-likeness, the chesed, to go out and love the world around us in all the different ways that we see that there is need of it. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen.